To introduce myself, I'm Kimberly Flowers. I'm the director of the Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. We provide research, analysis, and policy recommendations to strengthen the U.S. government's role in global food security issues. We also raise awareness of food security issues and tie them back to U.S. strategic interests, such as national security, economic growth, alleviation of poverty, and engaging the private sector. Last week, we were in Iowa to celebrate the World Food Prize. Some of you in this room were there as well. The World Food Prize, if you don't know, is often considered the Nobel Prize of food and agriculture. And we are so blessed this week to have with us the most revered agricultural scientist in the world, who happens to be the first person to receive the World Food Prize in 1987. Professor M.S. Swaminathan, thank you for extending your trip and spending time with us today. You are a legend, and we are so grateful to have you here. I also want to take a moment to thank Ambassador Islam Siddiqui. Without your leadership and hard work, this event would not have been possible. We're also honored to have with us this morning Dr. John Hamry, the President and CEO of CSIS for the last 15 years. Dr. Hamry served as the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense, and his distinguished career also includes serving as the Chairman of the Defense Policy Board and working for the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Congressional Budget, Budget Office. Dr. Hamry. I will be very brief because we're really here to hear Dr. Swaminathan. Uh, you know, I, I spent my career in the defense business. Uh, and you think that's important until you have a chance to meet a great man like this, who history records probably saved seven to 10 million lives. I mean, who of us could possibly say that? So it's, uh, it's awe-inspiring to have a chance to be with him. I met him last year out in, at uh, Des Moines at the World Food Prize, and I was struck by his enormous humanity, the sense of goodness that comes from him, and the way he's devoted his life to bring uh, science to save people. If ever there was a mission that we all would want to champion, it is that. And so it's enormous pride I have in thanking him for coming today. He's fit this in, in a, uh, to a very, very busy schedule. I don't know how he does it, and I'm so grateful <laughs> that he has. And he's going to be here now to enlighten all of us. And so let me turn it to you, ECU. Ambassador Siddiqui is going to lead the interview, and we look forward. I'm so excited to have a chance to watch this. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Dr. Hamri, and everyone else for joining us this afternoon. It is indeed my privilege and honor to welcome uh, our next uh, speaker for the, this afternoon. Uh, he's currently the chairman of the emeritus of the MS Swaminathan uh, Research Foundation, Chennai, India. Uh, Kimberly talked a little bit about uh, Dr. Swaminathan, but uh, with prior agreement with Dr. Swaminathan, because I had about three pages of his bio, we decided to give you more time for Q&A. We'll give a brief introduction for our guest speaker this afternoon. In 1960s, he worked side by side with the Nobel laureate uh, Norman Borlaug in introducing high-yielding varieties of wheat and rice to India. His leadership and vision changed India within a span of about 30 years from being a net food importing country to a net food exporting nation. 
This is a remarkable achievement in such a short span. In addition to serving as Director General of the Indian Council of Agriculture Research, he held several high-level positions in the Indian government, which are too numerous to give this afternoon. So I'll just mention, after he finished those assignments, including being a member of the India's Planning Commission, an apex body in India, he then went on to become the Director General of the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines between 1982 to 1988. As Kimberly said, he was the first recipient to, of the uh, World Food Prize, uh, which is awarded every year by the Normal Borlaug Foundation, and by many is considered to be the Nobel Prize in Food and Agriculture. He has received many honors from international organizations, universities, including 73 honorary doc, 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 doctor of science degrees from many universities. In the words of the former United Nations Secretary General Javier Perez de Cular in 1987, and I quote, Dr. Swaminathan is a living legend. His contributions to agriculture science have made an indelible mark on food production in India and elsewhere in the developing world. End of quote. No wonder he is known to many millions, millions of people within India as well as outside India as the father of India's Green Revolution. Ladies and gentlemen, help me welcome Dr. M. S. Swaminathan. Thank, thank you very much, Dr. Siddiqui. Can you hear me at the end? Is it all right? Is it audible? Okay. I'm very grateful for this, for the opportunity to come here. Dr. Siddiqui asked me. I'd gone to Des Moines, to, first to Cornell and to Des Moines. Then he said, why don't you come to Washington and share some experience with our people? I'm calling it sharing some experience and not a new knowledge, which all of you know, because you're very well informed. May I thank you, but my main thesis is the importance of synergy between technology and public policy. If we want to do anything, if we want, if you have a small finding, if it has to be scaled up, then you need public policy support, financial support, that means bad support. Well, it is well known to you, as far as science is concerned, as a scientist, I can increase the productivity of a crop, I can increase the stability of production, persistence to pests and diseases, and so on. But ultimately, whether the farmer finds farming economically viable or not, depends upon government policies, in input-output pricing, export-import policies, procurement policies, marketing policies. We say in, in India, the monsoon and the market are the two major determinants of a farmer's well-being. Monsoon cannot be controlled by government, but the market certainly government influences, and that's very important, whether the United States or whether it is India, for the farmers, ultimately, uh, the economic well-being of farmers is very important. Well, when the era of Green Revolution started, it had the backdrop of uh, very highly doomsday experts Doomsday predictions were very common in those days. One or two examples I'm giving here, Paul and William Paddock, the book is there, Famine Night, 1975. They predicted that India will starve to death, Indians will starve to death as a result of lack of food. Because the ability of the United States, which was then supplying under PL 480 program, large quantities of grains, 
that have been overtaken, overtaken. I'm sorry because of the time limitation, I'm going to go fast. But those of you who want to see it more, study it carefully, you can always, I'm sure you can make it available, we'll make it available. whatever is on your website. Same is also true, the growing dem demand supply gap, increasing price volatility, threats of widespread famine. These were all the predictions of the Paul and William Paddock. But not only Paul and William Paddock, can you go over, who is a, Anne and Anne Ehrlich, for example, the very famous book, Population Bomb. Population, the Population Bomb is a well-known book by Ehrlich's, but one of the sentences I have quoted there, sometime between 1970 and 1985, the world will undergo was famine. And the suggestion is that the U.S. government should no longer ship uh, food to countries like India, because in any case, they, what they call, you know, when you, the triad analysis, the triad analysis, uh, they are walking wounded or hopeless cases, considered to be hopeless, and therefore there was no point in. But from those days, from those doomsdays, when we had to depend upon what was called a ship-to-mouth existence, a PL-480 ship had to come before the public distribution system can be fed. From those days, India is probably the only country today which has got a legal commitment to provide food. It's called the Food Security Act of 2013. It, uh, it, it commits itself, the government commits itself to provide food, uh, so many quantities of food. It is not no longer a patronage. It is not a political patronage. It is not a charity. It is not poor feeding. It is your right, human right, to, be, to get food. And the fundamental duty of a government is to provide food. There are a number of other features in that particular bill which you might like to see. One is the recognition that a woman in the household is the custodian of food security and therefore the entitlements go to the woman. It is also a life cycle approach with the first thousand days of the child being given special attention. And above all, an enlargement of the food basket from wheat and rice to a variety of millets and what we call orphan crops or minor crops and so on, which are now becoming important both due to climatic reasons, we are all climate smart, we don't call it coarse cereals anymore. We say nutri cereals, nutri cereals, climate smart cereals and so on. These whole range of, I'll show you some picture afterwards. If so, you know, India is like the United States, a federal country, uh, depending upon their ability to meet the cost, different state governments have also got their own Food Security Act. For example, this state of Chhattisgarh, provides in addition to wheat, rice, or millets, it also provides pulses, or grain legumes. Next year, the International Year of Pulses, and they are very important in a vegetarian diet as a source of protein. They also provide iodized salt. Today, there are multiple fortified salts are available, not only iodine, but iron, iodine, vitamin A, vitamin B12, all of them, are multiple fortified salt. So that the Statistical Act attends to the three dimensions of hunger, No, no, I think you're going to next one, right? Next one is the, in the case of public policy, as I said earlier, it depends upon the commitment to agriculture is known, is clearly, it becomes evident by the, the investment made in infrastructure, agricultural infrastructure, whether roads or storage houses. And Jawaharlal Nehru uh, had a great fascination after he visited the United States, our first prime minister, he had a great fascination 
for multi-purpose projects. The Bakra Nangal, which I've shown here, is one example. Irrigation, power, and also for domestic purposes. Similarly, he felt that Indian soils, next one, Indian soils are hungry and thirsty, and therefore both hunger and thirst must be quenched. The thirst can be quenched by irrigation, hunger can be quenched by fertilizer application. So a large number of fertilizer factories, particularly the more successful ones, were in the cooperative sector, what we call the Indian Farmers Fertilizer Cooperative. These are shown here. They are very large and they are very successful because they have established a very good rapport with the farmers. They do a lot of, lot of demonstrations, lot of demonstrations. As a result of the investment in irrigation and water and also pesticides and so on, the government started what was called the Intensive Agriculture District Program, IADP. In other words, in the districts where there is water, provide all the other inputs which are needed. It's also called a package of program, package of inputs which, can, which are needed by the plant, the nutrients and so on. But nevertheless, I have said here, this particular project was started with great hope that would transform Indian agriculture. It didn't happen that way. There was wondering, they were wondering why it is so. A study showed that this package had one important missing ingredient, that is a variety which can respond to the rest of the package. This is what was made good as a result of Dr. Norman Borlaug and the, and the whole area of semi-dwarf varieties of rice, semi-dwarf varieties of wheat, hybrid corn, and so on. So on, a genetic, a genetic strain which can make use of it. We had commission after commission in the colonial days. A large number of commissions were established to study what is wrong with Indian agriculture. One was the Royal Commission on Agriculture. I think that was the major one before the British left India in 1947. That particular one, I was quoted a quotation from there, emphasizes the importance of research. However, however strong, the efficient the organization is built up for demonstration and extension, unless it is built on the solid foundation of science, scientific basis and research basis. This is one of the reasons why Jawaharlal Nehru, when he came to the United States, he was fascinated by the land-grant colleges started from the days of Abraham Lincoln. It is now it's over 150 years ago, the, the whole area of uh, land-grant college institution. The first one was started at Pantnagar, from where our distinguished ambassador comes. He belongs to that university. That was the very first. Each one had a partner institution in the United States. One university here, Ohio, one of the universities and an Indian university. They formed a partnership in order to build a university. So the very first major jump in productivity came. You see, green revolution is another term uh, which was coined by Mr. William Gard in 1968 to indicate produ production improvement through productivity improvement, not through area expansion, through vertical growth in productivity. The very first jump took place in rice uh, with uh, what was called the Indica Japanica hybridization program started by one Dr. K. Ramaya at the Central Rice Research Institute. What it meant was the Japanica varieties from Japan were able to respond to fertilizer. The Indica varieties from India were not able to respond to fertilizer. And ultimately, you require at least 125 kilograms of nitrogen per one ton of rice. So unless you can give, inputs are needed for output. I mean, the plant is not a magician. It makes something <laughs> out of sunlight. But it, it requires inputs. 
Therefore, Indica Japonica was the beginning of the, of the high-yielding varieties program. In the case of wheat and rice, the semi-dwarf varieties, one came from Japan, Norin Experiment Station, Onzira Inazuka was the one who developed it. It came through the United States to Orville Vogel in Washington State and then to Norman Borlaug in Mexico. That is how it came, and then to India and other places. In the case of rice, they came from China, the mainland of China, the DG Wujen gene, or came via Taiwan in many cases, or the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines on the other. That is how these new, new genes, these are called transformational genes. They transform the production whole. The, so we call them transformational genes, something which could transform the productivity of the crop. It was not a small mini effect, it was a macro effect. But I must tell you, each variety which you, you may eat, a variety of wheat or a variety of rice, but each one of them, a lot of research goes back. As Lord Indigo said, for example, in the case of wheat, when we introduced the new varieties in 1964, uh, some of them were susceptible to yellow rust and leaf rust. So one had to make a genetic checkmating, what they call genetic checkmating. You put appropriate gene in the appropriate place so that it doesn't attack. This, you see, it's also true today, Ebola, many of the problems, that the genetic dimensions are getting to be known. So in those days, in the 60s, those which led to uh, great changes, not only in terms of uh, demonstrations in farmers' fields, seed villages to produce seeds, but high-yielding varieties program, minimum support price for the first time, the government started procuring, because formerly they were importing, from United States largely, but now they started procuring from farmers. So you have to have an agency for procurement, and that was the Food Corporation of India. FCI was established, and the National Seeds Corporation was established. A whole series of pro, uh, measures were taken to provide the support to the farmers and support to the research system. This is important. Well, let me conclude this part of it by saying that uh, political leadership is very important. Uh, ultimately, in a democratic society, uh, the political leadership's guidance is important. And two, two individuals, among others, who gave enormous support in the 60s to the new science, to the new science, the new genetics, were Indira Gandhi, who was the prime minister, and uh, Mr. Subramaniam, who was minister for agriculture. They both strongly believed in science as the foundation of progress, and that is why they can you go on? Well, soon the problem started. One is the green revolution is all right. On the other hand, there were warnings about excessive use of pesticides, excessive drawal of groundwater, excessive exploitation of soil so that you have soil salinity and so on. <coughs> the most articulate person at the time was Rachel Carson <coughs> in her silent spring. But uh, it was clear, and Albert Schweitzer highlighted how man has lost the capacity to foresee and to forestall, and he will destroy. That led to a great deal of attention from by ecologists and environmentalists. They started examining the Green Revolution methodology, and they started criticizing that they are environmentally not sustainable. For example, the new sustainable development goals, number two goal, dealing with food, nutrition, they also say sustainable agriculture. How do you have an environmentally sustainable agriculture that is now part of the 
SDGs. So what I did was, there was a lot of, can you, can you go on, somebody? I had given a lecture in 1968, which I am not going to read out now, but those of you, I analyzed the problem, action, reaction, because I think one of the duties of scientists is to also analyze the reactions to their action. We should not just say, oh, I am sorry, it did happen, it can't. And so, <clears throat> when I was making analysis, I summarized it here, what, what happens when you have a very large number of varieties grown by farmers being replaced by one single variety, a single hybrid or a single variety. What are the consequences of genetic homogeneity? What are the consequences over exploitation of groundwater and so on? <clears throat> then I said, uh, if you want to have an ecologically sustainable, sustainable agriculture, I thought uh, I will not coin a new term, but I gave the term evergreen revolution. Evergreen revolution means improvement of productivity in perpetuity, in perpetuity, without ecological harm. Uh, there's a book of mine which, uh, uh, from green to evergreen revolution, those of you who are interested could go through it. What are the steps which are taken, which are taken? For example, I've said here, there's no other way except productivity improvement, because we have to produce more and more from less and less land. And that can be done only uh, without environmental cost, ecological cost. That is what the SDGs also say, Sustainable Development Goal. There are two pathways of achieving evergreen revolution. One is organic farming, which is becoming a little more popular, but very difficult for small farmers who do not have many animals. Because as I said earlier, you have to give nutrients for output. Input and output are related. But on the other hand, what we call green agriculture, that means environmentally sound agriculture, which is based upon integrated pest management, integrated nutrient supply, and so on. And not necessarily giving up completely pesticide or fertilizer, but minimum amount which is necessary. The difference between the green revolution was a commodity-based approach, while evergreen revolution is a natural resources-based approach, completely looking at the land, the soil, the water. It's a much more holistic approach. Well, can it be done? Can you go on increasing productivity? I have given one example in the case of wheat. So far, at least, the productivity has been going up and up every year. You introduce new technologies, new methods, overcome some pests and diseases, overcome soil health problems, then you have more and more yield. In other words, up to a point, I don't say you can endlessly increase yield, up to a point you can increase. Evo uh, Wilson, go ahead. Evo Wilson uh, said, he, he quoted one of my papers and said, this is the only way, evergreen revolution, this is the only by way by which we can really deal with the future challenges, the challenges ahead. Now, particularly with climate change, you have new challenges of temperature, precipitation, sea level rise, and so on. Well, in India, uh, as I said, public policy is reflected until now. The present government has changed the, the plan, what we call the planning commission. It has also changed the methodology. But until now, every five year, a program of work was developed for the whole country, not only for Delhi, but for the whole country. And that showed the priorities and investment pattern. For example, when I was in charge, introduced new chapters on women and development for the first time. 
and environment and development. These two chapters, which I wrote uh, in 1980, uh, the first time in the Planning Commission. Then there are a whole series of National Biotechnology Board. In 1980, we felt that biotechnology, because the first transgenic material has been developed in Petunia, the United States, by Robert Fraley, to whom we, get, we gave the World Food Prize two years ago, along with uh, two others, biotechnologists. Uh, the first recombinant DNA material was developed. So we felt that we should take advantage of the new technologies and uh, develop the National Biotechnology Board, of which I was the first chairman. Later on, it became a Department of Biotechnology of the Government of India. In the same way, every five years, you, you look at new opportunities in science or any other area and then try to make investment. Because it's really in investment uh, decisions how much that is where the policy is involved. In fact, when I went and asked Indira Gandhi, I was in charge of the Planning Commission for some time, what are your priorities? Uh, we will prepare, but you would you say your priority. She said, work, water, and power. Work for everybody, water and power. I was very impressed. She said, off the hand, off the cuff, when I said, what are your priorities? <laughs> work, water. So I think the political priorities are important. And in this particular case, it was a very, very correct diagnosis. Uh, you, everybody wants employment, and everybody wants water, both for irrigation, for agriculture, for industry, domestic purposes, and above all, power. Without power, you can do nothing at all. Power is so important. Energy is so important. All the three are important. Now, there's one problem in agriculture. People say farming alone does not give you enough income. But so far, our scientific work has not really covered the biomass utilization in a very efficient way. A plant, for example, in India, if I say 100 million tons of rice was produced last year, the same rice plant has produced 200 million tons of straw, of, 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 of bran, of, and so on. Ask. Yeah. So what, we, what I designed was a biopark where value-added products can be made from every part of the rice plant. For example, we put up one in Erie, International Rice Institute, uh, Corazon Aquino was then the president. She came and she was very impressed with the Christmas cards made by the woman there from rice straw. She ordered all her Christmas cards uh, from them uh, by the rice straw. She wrote there, it was uh, in the card was written there yeah. from rice straw, technology developed by the International Rice Research Institute. And it gave, it, it gave us a lot of publicity. So I was asked to help by the Ministry of External Affairs, the Government of India, two countries, one Afghanistan and the other was Myanmar. Afghanistan, we have put up a like land-grant college model, an agriculture university of Rajasthan, of Afghanistan. It is in Kandahar. It is one tarmac farm, about 1,400 acres of irrigated land. Very difficult to get in Afghanistan, irrigated land. The first thing we have done is a genetic garden of Afghanistan. Enormous variability in nuts and those of you who come from India or those who have read Rabindranath uh, Tagore, there's a poem called Kabuliwala, the man who comes from Kabul and he brings all kinds of goodies to the children who, when he comes there. So it's very important. This is, this, this is, this is now ready, it's operational. Uh, it is near Nepito, the new capital of uh, Myanmar. And the other one also is working all right. There's a lot of problem in Afghanistan. The Agriculture University of Afghanistan at Kandahar, their major problem is uh, insecurity. 
So people are not willing to, foreign professors, Indian professors are not willing to go there. Therefore, we have developed a distance education system. The Indian Agricultural Research Institute has been partnered with the Afghanistan uh, called ANAS2, Afghanistan National Agriculture University and Technology. Uh, and that one and the IARI. So the professors give the lectures in a room like this in IARI. The students in <laughs> Kandahar listen to it and take notes and so on. Because with modern technology, it is possible, possible to leapfrog in areas. But the point I'm trying to make is we must develop methods by which non-farm employment are based upon farm products. The Chinese did it with, that, uh, with the township enterprises, the rural township enterprises. Uh, both, they did, did for both on-farm and non-farm, but not including mine. Uh, con concurrent attention to on-farm and non-farm income has not been paid. Well, my last part is the question of uh, nutrition. In spite of all the, what is called the South Asian enigma, in spite of all the progress in agriculture, we say grain mountains and hungry millions. Grain mountains may be there, mm -hmm. but hungry. But there also public policy is important, grain mountain. But food. so what, what we have to do here to overcome the extensive malnutrition, tomorrow morning I'm going to spend some time with IFPRI, they produce the hunger index and so on. I think Rajul, I don't know if she's still here. They produce excellent documentation. And USDA, USAID, they also produce information on the extent of malnutrition prevailing. And unfortunately, my country, in spite of all the progress, and as being the only country with the right to food, still has the problem of very high degree of malnutrition. There are three kinds of hunger. One is calorie inadequacy, undernutrition, which is the most common. Protein hunger, protein inadequacy. Thirdly, hidden hunger or micronutrient deficiencies. Iron, iodine, vitamin A, vitamin 12. So that if you are going to attack, if you want to have a paradigm shift from food security to nutrition security, then it is important to concurrently pay attention to hidden hunger, protein hunger, and hunger itself, that is undernutrition. All the three have to receive concurrent attention. Otherwise, you don't have. Well, one of, the, one of the ways in which we can try to find an agricultural solution, what I call an agricultural remedy for a nutritional malady. Uh, when I go to a village, I teach them with one paper, page, pencil and paper, this is your nutritional problem. This is the agricultural solution. Is there a solution in agriculture? For example, sweet potato, the yellow flesh sweet potato has a lot of vitamin A. Moringa, I will show you. So there are three methods. One is uh, naturally occurring biofortified plants. Secondly, by breeding. Thirdly, by genetic modification. And the third one, the first one was the golden rice, what was called the golden rice. It got a lot of publicity, but uh, because of regulatory mechanisms, it has not yet been approved. Well, this is what we try to teach the farmers in a village. Uh, farming system for nutrition. We have a program, Farming System for Nutrition. It has three components. One is uh, try to grow varieties which are rich in micronutrients. Secondly, a genetic garden of biofortified plants to show them this is the source of vitamin A, this is the source of vitamin B12, and so on. Thirdly, community hunger fighters. Community, one woman and one male trained in every village uh, on nutritional literacy nutritional problem, what is missing, what is. 
This is Moringa. Moringa is a very rich. This is from National Geographic. I took the data from National Geographic. Enormously rich uh, one. So in our genetic garden of biofortified plants, uh, which are at the village level, uh, put by village woman, not by us. Uh, they, uh, Moringa is a very important one. Pulses, again, is a very important one. Next year, the international year, the pulses. What we have done is wherever there is a deficiency of protein hunger, there is a protein hunger, there is also a deficiency of water. Not enough water, because these uh, don't require so much irrigation as cereals, the pulses. We have recommended the local body, we call it panchayat, to convert themselves into a pulses panchayat. The large number of pulses panchayats which are now growing, the whole village becomes a pulse production unit. And uh, that's because social mobilization becomes very important. You see how much these minor, minor millets, the millets, what I call the climate smart, nutri millets, the whole range of variety. In other words, today, more and more, um, more and more at, uh, attention or understanding that agrobiodiversity is a very important source of over, overcoming malnutrition. Agrobiodiversity, that is agriculturally important biological diversity. Look at the knowledge of, the, then we call it curative diversity. Curative diversity is medicinal plants. They are becoming very important. Next, where is the, yes, these ladies have enormous knowledge. They grow 120, I think one of them, if you can see 124, Kanda, Kanda, uh, well, she grows 124 varieties of medicinal plants. They know what medicinal plant for what purpose, for fever, something else, for diarrhea, something, and so on. Enormous traditional knowledge and wisdom is present. And fortunately, this, fortunately, this has been given highlighted by this year's Nobel Prize. This Nobel Prize in Medicine, for the first time, Dr. Yu from China, she got it for, for, a, for something which is based upon a medicinal plant, artemisinin. The anti-malarial drug, artemisinin, developed by her, has a herbal origin. It is based upon a plant. And I think, I hope, this kind of recognition of plants, of drugs which have come from origin of plants, will give more motivation for conservation of medicinal plants and their study and sustainable use. Very important. Uh, this is by breeding. This is a, a hybrid pearl millet, uh, which has very high rich iron content. So you can have either breeding, you can have naturally occurring biofortified plants, or third, go ahead. This is released in Bangladesh, first high zinc rice variety. It's a very good variety. Uh, you see, as far as farmers are concerned, the yield must be good. Otherwise, just saying zinc or iron doesn't make a difference to them because the government doesn't pay by uh, quality. They pay only by quantity. And hence, it is very important. Next one. This is, this is what happened in the Philippines when somebody tried to grow the golden rice. Uh, they came and destroyed the whole thing. They destroyed the whole field. In other words, there's a lot of concern among the common people and several NGOs, non-government organizations, on the, uh, on the merits and demerits of genetically modified crops. Uh, that's why the governments will have to have a regulatory system. Barring the United States, the United States is the largest variety of genetically modified crops, but even Europe and other countries, they have a number of regulations and there are difficulties. Uh, they have to be solved. 
well, in India, the only one which has been released, approved by government, is cotton. Uh, bachelor's Turigens is BT cotton. That has helped to raise the yield of, uh, of cotton as well as production considerably, very considerably. On the other hand, recently a white fly, uh, this is, uh, bollworms are resistant, but a white fly has come. You, you see, you, you make progress somewhere, you have a breach out of the place, <laughs> because the pathogen is also looking for an opportunity to survive. You can't eliminate all the pathogens. They have to survive also. And therefore, they, go ahead, go ahead. I think just a few more, I'm so okay. sorry. Well, one, one way of overcoming this criticism against genetically modified foods is today you can achieve the same purpose. I can make, you see, I, 19, when I was in the University of Wisconsin, I, I produced material which led to a variety called Alaska frostless in potato. I transferred a gene for frost resistant called Solana Macaulay from the Lake Titicaca region of Peru, Bolivia, which is really the center of origin of uh, potato. I transferred the gene by a very ingenious method described in nature, which I described in nature. But I could transfer the gene for frost resistance before the onset of all these uh, uh, genetically modified crops. So there are methods by which you can do it. There are marker-assisted selection. There are what are called genome editing now. There are kits available now for genome editing, uh, which do not come under the, uh, strictly under the recombinant DNA technology. So you, you have other methods which you can use. Finally, one of the great uh, problems of climate change is the uh, possibility of sea level rise. Not only possibility, it is now occurring, the sea level rise, and it has a number of consequences. So what we have done in our foundation in Chennai, we were being located in a, can you, who is operating? In a coastal area. One of the things which happened is these mangroves were all being destroyed for aquaculture before. And now farmers have discovered that mangroves serve as bio-shields. They protect them. When we had a very severe tsunami, uh, 2004, December 26, Boxing Day, and unfortunately, a lot of people were in the sea, the beach, enjoying themselves. A lot of people died also in, in Thailand, uh, Phuket, and so on. They had gone out for the Christmas holidays, and the tsunami suddenly came from, from Indonesian side, it came. A lot of people died in India also, 10,000, 12,000. They were all afraid. Next one. But then wherever there were mangroves, seawater constitutes 97% of the world's water, 97% of the world's water. What are we doing with it, apart from uh, extracting salt or, or navigation? So what we have done, uh, seawater farming uh, for coastal area prosperity. It's also called bio-saline uh, farming in the Middle East. The Israelis have developed very good methods of biosaline farming, which still be aquaculture. The whole series of what are known botanically as halophytes, halophytes which can be used for, go ahead. These are all halophytes which are very useful. They form biofuel, edible oil, and so on. So we grow them along with aquaculture. This is what called seawater farming, agri-aqua farms. Aqua farms, agri-aqua farms, or silvi aqua farms. Genome, genetic garden of halophytes. Again, uh, people, many of the halophytes were disappearing. People didn't understand their importance. 
Now even the farmers understand uh, the salt-tolerant varieties of species. So just as I told you, genetic garden of biofortified plants, we are also developing genetic garden. These are all community genetic garden because we want them to be, uh, understand uh, they, that they should be conserved by them, not by government or by somebody else. International agencies will conserve. There, uh, there is the crop diversity trust and so on. But nevertheless, people themselves should also start. Conservation must become a habit. Otherwise, these UN Sustainable Development Goals will never succeed unless people cooperate, people's own collaboration. This area, UNESCO has a method of recognizing sites as heritage sites. Similarly, FAO has started globally important agricultural heritage sites. Mm -hmm. Two sites they have recognized in India. One is this Kotanad or Kerala, where farmers developed below sea level farming 150 years ago. They started growing crops five to six meters below sea level. I won't go into the technology. It was a, it is a rice, fish, and coconut. Mm. Three crops, rice, fish, coconut. Uh, gives them a good income, and it's a very important method. It has been re recognized as a globally important agriculture at site. The next one was Orissa, Koraput area, which is an agro-biodiversity, agricultural biodiversity-based farming system. They have preserved about 3,000 varieties of rice. The world has 150,000 varieties of rice, of which over 100,000 are in the Gene Bank of Erie, the International Rice Research Institute. That only shows the selection done by the local communities. Local communities have been all the time selecting. When the tsunami occurred, this man, for example, he lost his wife in the tsunami. Uh, so he got very afraid of going. Very small artisanal fishermen going to the sea, he was afraid. Now with the mobile telephony, it gives him data on wave heights, where the fish are, and where the Sri Lankan waters are, where the Indian waters end and the Sri Lankan waters begin. Mm -hmm. So to, he, he checks up all the data. I, we, we get the data from one institute uh, called INCOIS, located in Hyderabad. Mm -hmm. We transmit it to these people. And they, before they go, they go armed with information on uh, wave heights, where the fish are. And of course, they are always given warning when they try to leave the Indian shores and enter the Sri Lanka waters, because then they get arrested there and so on. We, we have set up an academy. Uh, it's called Jamshedji Tata National Virtual Academy. Uh, many of them are, all are village, village women and men, village women and men who have just gone up to high school, not more than that. They are the academicians. They are all, in, uh, like any other academy, US National Academy of Sciences, there's a procedure before you can become an academician. <coughs> so here also, our then president, who recently died, who is called People's President, Abdul Kalam, he was so fond of this academy, he told me in the first convocation he came, he said, will you invite me to the second convocation also? <laughs> I said, normally we don't invite the same person. <laughs> Make an exception, I will come. <laughs> and he did, that's why he called it People's, Unfinished agenda, alarming state of malnutrition. I've already said we must bring agriculture, nutrition, and health together. It's very important today. These three, the health, nutrition, and agriculture, must come together. Otherwise, we'll have difficulty, so much difficulty. 
I designed a farming system for nutrition. I've already explained to it. Next one. National Commission on Farmers. We made a number of recommendations because in India, unfortunately, there were some of you might be reading, it may come in newspapers here also. There are a lot of farmer suicides. Suicides out of frustration uh, because they are economically, they are not able to repay their loans. We have given very detailed, uh, detailed suggestions from the National Commission of Farmers. If any of you are interested in farming, uh, but of course these are largely relevant to India, you can go through them. There no time to relax. This is a sentence from Borlaug. Borlaug's title for his Nobel acceptance speech, Peace Prize speech, was no time to relax. <laughs> no, that was acceptance speech of Nobel Peace Prize. There's no time to relax because you've got a whole series of problems. Above all, my colleague Dr. Parish Raman is here. He's concerned about youth joining agriculture, attracting and retaining youth in agriculture, keeping good land for agriculture. Real estate has expanded so much, and the price of land has gone up so much. All the, all the plots where I used to grow national demonstration, they've all now become malls and big hotels and so on. Very, very difficult. How to retain farming, how to retain farmers in farming, how to retain farmland in farming. These all have become uh, big problems. Price volatility, I said that the future belongs to nations with grains and not guns, because it's very important to remember if you neglect agriculture, nothing will go right. If agriculture goes wrong, nothing else will go right. That is why even in this country, where only 2% of the people are employed in agriculture, the farm bill, there are many measures taken to protect farming and farmers, very important. Well, this uh, tribute to Dr. Norman Borlaug, uh, new frontiers of the mind and technology are before us. And if, if they are pioneered, with the same vision, boldness, and drive with which the battle against food shortage was fought by Borlaug through the Green Revolution, we can achieve the zero hunger goal sooner than generally considered possible. In other words, it's very important to bring technology, public policy, and farmers' enthusiasm, all the three together. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I've trespassed my time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Swaminathan, just for this fascinating uh, lecture this afternoon. And we have the second part of the program is to have a few uh, question and answer between the discussion between Professor Swaminathan and myself. And then we'll open it up for question and answer from the audience. So if you bear with us, uh, and we'll let uh, Dr. Swaminathan uh, relax a little bit. He has been talking for the last more than half an hour. So you have covered quite a ground, uh, Dr. Swaminathan. So my first question is, most of the gains in agriculture productivity in the past 50 years have been through the use of conventional methods. Now, with the challenge we faced uh, in the next uh, 35 years, year 2050, where population is expected to nearly go to 9.5 billion people on this planet, what new technologies in agriculture do you envision to meet this challenge in the next 35 years? The new things are all, you know, a human mind works best when you have, a, when you have a, uh, some, uh, some calamity or some extreme pressure. That was clear during the world wars where so many new techniques were developed. 
as far as agriculture is concerned, until now, we have to be, we have to, our food largely comes from the soil. Not, the oceans and the inland waters give about 10% of our food. 90% still comes from the soil. It's very important, uh, the soil, uh, what I call breeding soils for high fertility. Soil breeding, sometimes soil scientists don't like the word. Yeah. When I say you are a plant breeder, so you call soil breeding. But we have to breed soils now, overcome their difficulties, overcome their deficiencies, breed soils for high fertility. So on the one hand, maximize productivity on the land. The other hand, 97% of the water, which is waiting to be used, the seawater, the biosaline agriculture, all along the coastal areas, all India has got 8,000 kilometers of shoreline, along with Lakshadweep and Andaman Islands. We can produce more, lot of food over there. Therefore, we should now start looking at new opportunities, both in technology and in, uh, and in natural resources conservation. That is why I consider this uh, SDG important. Sustainable development is important, because that is on the very basis. Thank you. The other issue you mentioned, climate change. Uh, even in the developed countries, there, like USDA is opening climate change centers in different regions to make the farmers aware of uh, this impending challenge and how to mitigate that. So especially challenge facing in developing and least developed countries, uh, what are the suggestions you're making or you will make to policymakers how to prepare these millions of farmers who live in the developing and the least developed Climate countries. change is likely to be a mega, mega catastrophe. I mean, all the catastrophes, uh, there are a number of problems which are coming up. Because first of all, extreme weather events, many other events. But uh, anticipatory action can be taken. Of course, this is called mitigation and adaptation. These are two words which are used. But adaptation and mitigation techniques, there are a lot of possibilities today. Anticipated research, for example, in 1988, my colleague Sina and I published a paper on what is going to happen in wheat in North India, we, our main source of Punjab. One degree centigrade temperature or two degree centigrade temperature average increase, which is now postulated, will decrease the average yield of wheat by about 600 kilograms per hectare, six quintals per hectare, because the duration will be shorter. So you now try to identify varieties which are capable of per day productivity, not per crop productivity. Reduce the duration of the crop. Many crops, potato for example, we will have the lose the advantage of the aphid free season. Mm -hmm. Then you'll have to have, have from true seed. So a considerable amount of anticipated research and also research to convert technology into a field application. Trans Translational research and operational research, as well as anticipated research, and above all, participatory research. Uh, we need a new approach to sci science in terms of participatory research with the local communities, with the local fishermen. For example, whatever we do with that fisherman I showed you, uh, yeah. we, we do it with him. Uh, the, well, fortunately, one of the com uh, companies has given us a large number of uh, the cell phones are being given to fishermen. And uh, so it is possible to help them. Thank you. Uh, one last question, then we'll open up for question and answer. Uh, uh, you have mentioned uh, the number of 
issues which, uh, in terms of meeting the challenges. But if you were to get a call from United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon this afternoon, what are your top three recommendations to meet the needs of the sustainable development goals, of, uh, which is to achieve zero hunger by 2030? So what are the three recommendations what, would you make? What, what, what were the three main recommendations would you make? Three major issues. So, okay. uh, so meeting the uh, hunger, uh, zero hunger challenge by 2030. No, the three major issues. Are, one is to how to convert the sustainable development goals into achievement. They're very important because they have been, they are all important. Of course, a whole series of them yeah. is important to develop methods by which it can be done. Secondly, the mitigation efforts in climate change should okay. go apart from adaptation because mitigation is a public policy issue, not adaptation is a people's issue, okay. but mitigation must uh, receive much higher attention. Thirdly, in the field of food and nutrition, we must diversify our food habits. You see, in the United States and elsewhere, if you hear the National Academy of Sciences here, uh, there are publications by Vietmeyer, the lost crops of the Incas, how many crops were there, 500, 600 crops which are being grown? Yeah. So we must, uh, the conservation ethos, uh, conservation of biodiversity uh, and sustainable use, these are important. But I would put number one, as I said earlier, the whole area of, uh, uh, apart from climate change, the sustainability okay. goals. Sustainable development goals must be become operational because there are, of course, uh, over 170 or something <laughs> operational methods. Yeah. But everywhere, and also it should be done at local level. Global thinking is all, all right. Global diagnosis is a problem. But ultimately, action must lie. At, and above all, the woman empowerment of women becomes very important. So essentially, you're saying think globally, but act locally. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, uh, we will now open up for question and answer. I will appreciate if you can state your name and the organization to represent. So we'll start uh, uh, from this side. Anyone? Uh, yes, sir. Sheikh. Can you just speak? I couldn't follow. Yeah, state your name. Yeah. And, uh, My name is Ramesh Deshpande, formerly of World Bank, and now working on various projects in India. So my interest is in India, and what else we can talk when Dr. Swaminathan is here? Now, talk, you said research is the foundation of development. Now, what do you think is the current status of India's agricultural research system, both in the public sector and private sector? You see, technology has remained more or less stagnant. Agricultural growth has been 1% last year and last 10 years average of 2%, as against the planned goal of 4%. So given these problems, and also in private sector, if, for example, there are two issues here. The Green Revolution brought, made India a surplus trade in grain, it's a net, net exporter. But Green Revolution has reached only 50% of its potential. It can still go, or maybe more, number one. Number two is, if tomorrow government decide that let India go for GMOs, is Indian research system, ICAR, or private sector, ready to undertake that challenge. Thank you. Of course, the first point of agricultural growth is come down because of the very, 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 very poor monsoon. 
and uh, the credit system is also not functioning well. Most of the farmers who are indebted have to take credit for the money lender at high rates. Uh, Marathwada, for example, some I don't know which part of India you come from, was practically very little rain this time. Naturally, I, see, I use the word, I think sometimes plant is not a magician, so it requires nutrition, it requires water, and water has to be done. So one of the priorities we should have is, uh, in, uh, the present Prime Minister has identified irrigation as one of the important methods, but that is not enough. Here, I think what we have done in our own villages and so on, we see, wherever people have harvested rainwater, rainfall doesn't completely fail. It becomes a problem. Uh, mandatory rainwater harvesting. In Tamil Nadu, in Chennai, in Madras, Jayalalitha in the last time made water harvesting by, uh, you know, at home level, every home as mandatory. At that time, there was some resistance, but today people feel very happy. They have harvested water. In my own house, for example, I, I did it before any such regulation came. But we have not bought one liter of water out from outside. But my neighbor buys a lot of water from by tankers and so on. So I think it's important uh, to have uh, water, uh, uh, the kind of undulations, what I call price volatility. Price volatility is also related to production volatility. It comes soon. We must give very high priority. I'm sorry to say agriculture is not receiving that attention which is needed. Uh, it is all a lot of, you know, a lot of lip service to farmers, farming. Uh, Kisans are our most important people. <laughs> but they, if they are most important people, the suicide should not be taking place. <laughs> they, they should have stopped long ago. So I, I think we are going to pay very dearly our cost of neglect of agriculture. It's going to be a very dear cost. Yes, Jit, Jit there. KG, please, yeah, wait till the microphone comes here. Can you just yeah. a little louder? Professor Swaminathan, Jit Srivastava. I learned from you in the 1965 when you took some bold decisions to make the Green Revolution. It helped, but they were both bold decisions taken. Now, uh, very rightfully, you are talking about the evergreen revolution or sustainable agriculture. What one or two things India should do to do it because we are hearing about some of the adverse impacts of climate change, uh, of uh, green revolution in Punjab, Western UP, and so forth. I think we all know what are the solutions, but what can be done to achieve those things, which are so important, and you just mentioned. That's true. I agree Thank with you. you. Yeah, please. Uh, no. Go to the question part. Co can you repeat the question quickly? The question part is, you, I agree with your statement. Is there no, any particular no, question you want no, to ask? The question was, Dr. Swaminathan, that you had taken some very bold decisions in the 60s for the start of Green Revolution, which is wonderful, and the world knows about it. What do you think? The question is, 
question is the, the question the question is you have just very rightfully mentioned the need for the evergreen revolution right what are the few basic elements that yes. has to be met to achieve yeah, it evergreen good question yeah. evergreen revolution the basic questions are the conservation of land water biodiversity and uh, mitigation of climate to the extent you can first of all the basic ecological foundations essential for sustainable agriculture those are the land water biodiversity and so on they must be conserved they must be utilized effectively secondly mark on the one hand the production phase the other hand the post harvest phase the storage the management is very poor no kind the storage losses are very high in fact according to a few 1.3 billion tons of food grains are lost every year either due to losses or storage structures and thirdly we should ensure that we have enough of public good research public research research which is intended for public good because commercial research is important i don't say they are not important but there is both nationally and internationally the support to agricultural research has come down and uh, we as i said there are possibilities today every problem is a solution not that you can sit down and write what is solution but then you require much more investment in science in anticipatory work and so on thank you now we'll go to the side uh, in the back of the room please go ahead yeah yeah you you sir yeah okay thank you very much My name is Steve Greta. I'm from Ensight Consulting and I'm questioning I, my question is about how the green revolution was celebrated in in Southeast Asia um and Africa has uh, been aspiring to accomplish a similar feat. So my firm works with agribusiness companies in the private sector in West Africa as well as some some governments in that region. And you mentioned the evergreen revolution are there elements of the green revolution that uh perhaps west african farmers and governments can can leapfrog and bypass in order to reach the evergreen revolution um and if so can you share what those are very good question can we can, then, can, can the leapfrog huh? can the leapfrog the green revolution and yeah. go into the evergreen revolution without going through the what india and other countries went can it go into that yeah green revolution africa, in africa in africa in africa same thing can be replicated in africa or madagascar possible i think it was more than that it can you can leapfrog even beyond the green revolution <laughs> there what is your main question because so can you repeat the main question once again yes sir yeah you elements of the green revolution yeah that african countries can leapfrog in order to be correct Evergreen revolution can it do? You mean in Africa? Huh? In Africa? In Africa? Yes. No, I understand. But in Africa, you see, there are parts of Africa which are doing very well. The real difficulty in Africa has been once you had, you see, Norman Borlaug had a lot of demonstrations of new new corn varieties, new wheat varieties. You could show the potential, untapped potential is high, but unless the rest of it, particularly the farmers produce more. they suffer more the prices collapse unless you have a machinery for minimum support price 
and to buy the grains from the farmers, store them. Those in India, they were developed. That is why India made progress. Those countries have not invested in post harvest management at all. Some, you see, foreign agencies go, including international centers, they put up demonstrations to show, instead of one ton of corn, you can get five tons of corn. But if I have seen farmers who have produced five tons of corn, they have suffered as a result. They don't know nobody to buy the crop. The prices are not there. So unless the government policy is such, ultimately the income to the assured income to the farmer is the most important incentive to him. And hence, if you don't if you if you don't work around that, how do I ensure that not only higher yield but higher income comes. You measure your progress in agriculture, not so much by productivity per hectare, but per income per hectare. Then you will find production will go up. One, uh, one, one more and then we'll come to your side. Go ahead, please. Yes, sir, you're, you're next. Microphone, yeah. Microphone here. Yeah. There's one on this side. Thank you very much, uh, Professor uh, Swaminathan. Uh, we're really glad to see you here again. My question is regarding the Artemisia you mentioned about the Nobel Prize. And I remember when I was working in CDRI, mm -hmm. plenty of work was done there. But uh, I think uh, your uh, uh, direction is needed now in uh, ICMR and ICAR and uh, CSIR to pick up this uh, drug development program from medicinal plant of India. So what is your thought about it? <laughs> but what do you want with ICR and CSIR? <laughs> what exactly is the question? No, I'm, my question, not question, it's like I'm requesting you to, you have to give some direction to Indian research organizations like CSIR, ICMR, to take the projects or initiate the, the motivation, the scientists to take the drug development from the medicinal plant of India. Plenty of work is done. Artemisia, I think okay. in um, the no, 80s, I, they did a lot of you work. see, those organizations, CSAR, ICR, ICMR, I would say on the whole they are trying to do what they can. Little bit of more political interference than in my time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> appointments, <laughs> appointments and so on, are done somewhat political consideration. Yeah. But uh, the scientists themselves, the young scientists in particular, they are all much more brilliant than before. Mm. They have enormous capacity. I find today, when I go to a laboratory, the young boys and girls who are there, most of them are brilliant, but they should be given opportunity. See, after all, the United States calls itself land of opportunity, unless you have an opportunity to them. And that is the role of the ICR, ICMR, Incidentally, my daughter is the head of the ICMR. Yeah, congratulations for that, too. What you told me. So there's one Swaminathan in, in charge of ICMR. He was telling me that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> yeah, you, sir. Thank you. Now, the, uh, I will come to you. I have a list, so please go ahead. My name is Sampat. Yes. I just wanted to know, now India, while it has done something very 
brilliantly in rice and other grain production. Unfortunately, this year, we had to import pulse, and roughly 2 million tons is the gap. From 17 million to 19 million tons, we have come back to 17 million tons. What do you think, in your opinion? Is there a need for a genetically modified pulse crop in order to get that breakthrough that has happened in, the, in terms of grains? Mm. Or is it PDS which is required? Because the grains have the PDS support. As right now said, it is the price which is more important for the farmer. Mm. What is more important here? Because in Burma, in Myanmar, they have doubled the production in the same year when we have reduced the production. So I would like to have your opinion. No, no, the price is important because, after all, you see, they're holding small holding. Most of them are small farmers. And their marketable surplus is not very high. And therefore, unless they get a reasonably good income, their total net, what I call net take-home pay, you have to, in the case of the public servants, all, all others, there are pay commissions, there are methods of uh, compensating them against inflation and so on but not for farmers. 60% of the consumers are also farmers. We talk about farmers and consumers, but the consumers, largest percentage of consumers, uh, they have to eat even more than you and me because they work hard in the field. <laughs> and therefore, I think the whole con concept of uh, agriculture, farmers, farmers' problems, is not at, uh, not at strong enough for the kind of action you are thinking. And that's why the previous questioner asked about ICR and so on. They have much more important uh, role in influencing public policy, in influencing public opinion, in influencing political opinion. Uh, because in this country, people gather. I know in the what happens in Congress and so on. They have people who are able to, but that kind of public political education is very weak. Either the politicians don't want to learn <laughs> but uh, our scientists also do not spend time both on public and political education. Even the Royal Society of London has developed two, uh, set up two committees. One is Committee on Public Understanding of Science, COPUS. Yeah. The other is Committee on Political Understanding of Science. Uh, and that's very important. When Mrs. Thatcher was uh, Prime Minister, she refused to believe in climate change. And then President of the Royal Society told me that he arranged a special briefing for her and she sat through for four hours, our top scientists giving what is it, facts, what is fiction about climate change. And at the end of the day, she publicly announced in the media that she is convinced that climate change is not fiction, it is reality. <laughs> so I think the responsibility of scientists, the responsibility of scientific organization uh, for more of uh, public education and political education, very important. Thank you. We'll start from the back of the room. Yep, Carol. Who is it? Yeah, yeah. another question. Yeah. So can My you speak up a little louder, please? Sure. My name is Phil Thomas. I'm with George Mason University's uh, Global Food Security Project. And, uh, you know, to eliminate uh, hunger by the year 2030. Is it okay? No, no. Speak louder? Okay, sorry. No, you go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay, sorry. How do you achieve the necessary amount of political will globally and nationally to reach the 2030 goal of zero hunger? This is from a public policy perspective. 
you know, to get the politicians, the NGOs, civil society, and the private sector to work collaboratively to achieve this goal. Because there was a commitment to reduce hunger uh, in half uh, in 2015, yes. and we could argue about that, whether it was done or not. But the bottom line is, this is a very lofty goal. Where do you get the political will to do it? So just, just like in the Green Revolution, yeah. by getting the policymakers yeah. in India like the Jawaharlal Nehru and Priyam uh, Gandhi, how he's uh, asking, how do you get the political will uh, at the national level, international level, to achieve the goals of the next sustainable level. development? Next level of next. You see, your question is a very important one, <laughs> but there's no simpler single answer. Once I remember Mahmoud Haq, the famous Pakistan, who started the Human Development Report in UNDP, uh, he was asked this question, something similar to your question. And he said, unfortunately, the time span over which the vision of a politician is one election, from one election to the other election. <laughs> and in the case of dictator, he's from one coup to the next coup. In both cases, is never next to the next generation. <laughs> next generation is not in a vision. Who from one election to the other election, yeah. one coup to the other. The problem, unfortunately, is that's why I said people, societies like Royal Society have started a more fundamental program of a Committee on Public Understanding of Science, Political Understanding of Science. Try to get a whole new breed of new breed of political leaders who are concerned with. SDGs, for example, how committed they are to the sustainable development goals. Uh, that requires, uh, at least I can't see it in my, I was a member of parliament for six years, and they were fighting on very trivial issues, uh, never on major issues, <laughs> which are important. Uh, trying to pay political score one, one over the other. So sustainable development was not in their radar. And you have to put in your radar. <laughs> no. I'm Mike Lesnick with the Meridian Institute. Hello, Mike. Nice to see you, you anyway. Good to see you. He's a very old friend. Very old friend. Uh, actually, my question maybe is a good segue with this on the time span issue. So we've been convening uh, the negotiator, the agriculture negotiators and the climate change negotiations uh, for the last couple of years. Some are politicians, some are scientists, some are science advisors to politicians. But a couple of things that they are sharing, real worry about variability in weather and its effect, whether it's on food security or their trade for their country. Uh, but also on the science side is an increasing worry of their national or, or the international plant breeders uh, to keep up with the pace of change. National breeders and plant breeders. Employment. Are, are start, they're starting to be worried, can they keep pace with the kind of variability that's happening, the adaptation part, can the plant breeding keep up with what looks like will be the challenges around climate change? Do you share their worry? Do you think that's not well-founded? Do you think there's some reason for concern? And if so, then what? Is it clear? So are the plant breeders and breeders ready to meet the challenges yeah, which you. are expected from climate change in terms of the different climate zones? Uh, would they be able to re respond to the climate change in a timely manner, or plant the breeders, plant breeders yes. in terms of developing new varieties? In terms of is that the question? Yes. In terms of? N developing new varieties of 
yes. crops. But what's the question? They they are developing all the time new new varieties. Oh, I see. You, uh, that depends upon the support and the priorities. And I agree with you. I, I mentioned it also. Today, national and international public good research is uh, uh, getting yeah, lower I, I support. But uh, the point you have made is very important. Unless you accelerate progress, accelerate progress will have difficulty. See, already today, the world food situation is very, very delicate. People don't realize it. Very delicate situation. That's why I said, the future belongs to nations with grains and not guns, because it's going to be. People don't realize the seriousness of the emerging scenario. Even India, because we have got 40, 50 million tons of food grains in government storage, they will disappear in no time. One or two droughts more, we are finished. We will not be able to implement our Right to Food Act because that's a legal legal act, a legal commitment to provide food. So I agree with what you have said. Thank you. This gentleman has been raising a question. Yeah, please give. I think you can hear me, sir. Please my, come. Yeah. My name is Vargis George. I work with the Hindu newspaper. Pardon? Please come. Please okay. Okay. <laughs> so you mentioned how significant public policy is in achieving zero hunger target. In India, there have been concerns being raised about the new government's priorities not exactly being in alignment with the policy initiatives that you described in your presentation. Do you share that concern about the current government in India? It's a political question. The new government has a large number of pronouncements. Prime Minister particularly is a real spokesperson of the new government. Uh, his intentions are good and his pronouncements are good. But actually in the field level things are not uh, happening in the way I think I could see you are concerned. And uh, that's why I said agriculture requires much more priority. Science requires more priority. Science requires more autonomy. People should be able to work on the problems which are. So what is going to social protection measures which are very strong. See, in my state, for example, Tamil Nadu, the reason why the chief minister is getting re-elected is her concentration on social protection measures. Amma canteen, Amma water, Amma everything. So she, she is able to meet the people's needs at a very low cost. Naturally, it gets votes in the election. Uh, so the, the new government is now nearly going to be two years old, not two years exactly. But let us see uh, how far they will maintain the social protection measures and strengthen them further. Thank you, Doc. Let's, let's come at him before you blame that I'm being only focused on the left go? side, rather the right side. Yeah, we have five more minutes. Then five minutes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let's go. Thank you, Dr. Sobhidathan. Um, my name is Scott Macbeth. I'm from John Hopkins School of Public Health. I'm a doctoral student in human nutrition. So uh, it was a joy to hear you talk briefly about Moringa oleifera, as that is one of the plants I'm studying in the program. And my question is what do you believe are the barriers 
to using a plant like Moringa oleifera on a larger scale to reduce malnutrition. And inside of the context of a ready-to-use therapeutic food, RUTF, would Moringa oleifera as a, uh, as a, local, uh, a local source of nutrition uh, be able to be incorporated into that RUTF as a, as a potential for use on a larger scale? So what are the constraints on the Moringa in terms, what are the constraints yeah. in the Moringa production? Is it and then delivery to the population? Constraints. In constraints. In what? Yeah. In Moringa plants, so nutritional biofortification of the medicinal plants and other nutritional plants. Yeah. What are the constraints you have? Constraints are, uh, you see, first of all, the area we were talking about medicinal plants. Huh? Moringa. 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 Which one? What? Moringa kai. No, Moringa kai. Oh, Moringa. Yeah, okay. the, the miracle plant. <laughs> that is uh, no concern. People eat a lot. It's a question of taste. The whole of South India, it is eaten very, very much so. But people are not knowing that the significance of the nutritional value of that plant. Now, once you have a little better understanding of uh, nutrition, then for children onwards, the mother starts feeding. You know, all of our food habits come from young ages. We try to develop our own food habits. But the, the, one of the purposes of these genetic garden of biofortified plants, in which this drumstick is one of the important components, is for the purpose of public education. That this is a plant which can provide you. Uh, don't go on all the time thinking of some vitamin tablets alone. But you can get the same thing through the natural plants. So it's a question of nutritional literacy, nutritional education, and a much better understanding. More money has been invested in under promoting understanding. Thank you. Now we have enough time for two questions. I will take. Is there any question on this side before I move to this side? If not, then Ajay from the. Um, you have the question. Okay, okay. Go ahead, please. We are, speak really, up. we are really honored to have you, sir, here. My name is Sardendu Singh, and I am an agriculture scientist. I am working with the USDA Bellsville, Maryland. Um, I was really fascinated about the way you uh, describe some of the measures or practices we can take in order to reach that zero hunger at 2030. However, knowing that the productivity, the production, increase in the productivity per square feet or area is one of the major aspects to reach the zero hunger. So I always wonder, even I'm a scientist, I work with the crops, try to do the model and find the effect, but I always puzzled what are one or two steps we can take to increase the productivity. I know in the face of changing climate, depleting natural resources, global conflict, and so on, it's really hard. But it's still, genetics and breeding, biotechnology, they are right now on the top of everything. But how we can increase the productivity? Because most of these crops are at the height of their productivity already. So how? No, no, how means both here some degree of education, but more important is government should have, in the case of post-harvest technology, like storage, processing, marketing, as you said, 
the rice biopath. Infrastructure investment is important. Some more investment in infrastructure. Uh, here, if you go to a uh, farm, I, I was in Iowa, you know, the new kind of John Deere machines, <laughs> they just do a miracle. They are miracles, really, the kind of equipment you have. And in India, more than 50% of the work of the farm is done by women, and they have practically little support in terms of new implements, in terms of new machinery, and so on. So our research priorities will have to be looked at very carefully and ensure how to improve productivity and how we reduce drudgery in the case of women-specific work. That's very important. Uh, there's a solution to all your problems. <laughs> but then they have to be taken by organization, which are mentioned by him, like the ICR and so on. Thank you. Yeah, Ajay, you had a question? No, okay. So one last question on this, yeah, this young lady. The last question? Yeah, yes. The last. Hi. Um, hi, thank you very much, Dr. Swaminath, an, invest, an investor. My name is uh, Neeru Prathan. Can you come closer? Yeah, come okay. closer. Uh, sure. I have a little have a problem. <laughs> My name is Neeru Prathan. I'm with the US Department of Agriculture, the Foreign Agricultural Service. And I'm working on the McGovern Dole Food for Education program. My question is about uh, the Right to Food Act that was recently passed in India. And I'm just wondering what kind of challenges you expect the government of India will face in implementing the Right to Food Act, particularly in light of the, um, the tensions in the World Trade Organization over India's uh, storage of of um, stock holding. Stock holding, exactly. So I'm just wondering, um, what kind of challenges do you expect the government of India will face in implementing the Right to Food Act? Thank you. So National Food Security yeah. Act of Good India, point. National Food Security Act of India, which passed in 19, 2013, you mentioned. Yeah. So what problems do you see in terms of the uh, meeting the goals of that vis-a-vis -vis the World Trade Organization? Uh, issues kind of, on the stock, kind of public stock holdings. What kind of? What kind of issues do you see in terms of conflict between the WTO requirements in terms of public stock holding and India's meeting the goal of its right to food act? What role NGOs can play? Exactly. NGOs. No, no, not NGOs. Food Security uh, Act of 2013. You mentioned in your talk that India has the right to food act, which was passed right. in 2013, mm -hmm. and the WTO. Uh, it's public stockholding. Uh, how do you reconcile the two? I still can't follow fully the question. Yeah. So, can, it, can you? Yeah. Where is the lady? You, 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 yeah, can What is the question? In view, in view of the WTO. What, what are the What is? No, so what kind of you, oh, I see. Food Security Act is very clear. The Act and Act is passed by Parliament, Parliamentary Committee. It was I was also a member. It was a multi-party. All parties have unanimously approved. It requires, in the case of uh, implementation, much of the public distribution system. It has to go to the PDS, what we call the PDS, public distribution system. 
those are all under the control of the state governments. Uh, so a, I mentioned a state like Chhattisgarh. They have not only adopted the Food Security Act, but gone further in terms of protein, in terms of salt, and so on. There has to be a lot of political will at the level, because some amount of financial commitment is needed from the state governments. The government of India will give the green, that's all. But then the rest of it, the distribution costs, everything will have to be met by them. So slowly, some states are coming, some states are not coming. And that is why the Indian figures on hunger, hunger are not going down. They are not, in spite of all the steps taken. Even, for example, for children, ICDS, Integrated Child Development Service, or noon meal program in school, many of them should have really been reflected in figures in, the, in <laughs> terms of reduction in uh, children below weight and so on. Not happen. I'm worried about it. I think it's the implementation at the level of, uh, uh, there has been a lot of corruption, but that is now being with the modern information technology. Uh, corruption is coming down because there are methods of preventing it. But uh, earlier, the usual explanation was there's a lot of corruption in distribution. And uh, that will, so people like you will have to help and how to improve this system. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way. Some state governments have done well. Some are not doing well. Tamil Nadu has done well, I must say, all said and done. It has done, it has done well because the priorities are from a very long time. Tamil Nadu was the first state which introduced noon meal program. It's universal noon meal in schools. Mr. M.G. Ramachandran, when he was chief minister. Thank, thank you, Dr. Swaminathan. If I may just add, uh, the, I was in Bali uh, as the U.S. representative there on, the, on this very issue. As long as a country uh, provides food security to its citizens, there's no limit to it. They can provide food security. How you implement the food security bill of 2013 in a non-trade distorting way. So this is where the issue arose this WTO cannot impose any restrictions in terms of how much and the size of a program, as long as some of this leakage from the food security, grain which is acquired for security, doesn't end up in international market as subsidized price. So that's the issue, really. So if I may just uh, conclude, uh, Dr. Swaminathan has kindly agreed to be here just for uh, socialization purposes after we end up this uh, former part of the program. There are some refreshments. Uh, uh, beverages. So let me just summarize, uh, if I uh, may, Dr. Swaminath. I think your focus was in terms of protecting the uh, biodiversity in a, and also implementing many of the changes in a sustainable way. Uh, and thirdly, uh, I think his emphasis is more allocations and investments in agriculture research, both at the national level, the international level, like CGIR system. I think that's very important, that's where scientists, and then having the support or buy-in from the political leaders, both at the national level and international level, that's very important, and that was the difference when Borla, Dr. Borlaug and Dr. Swaminathan worked with the both Prime Minister Nehru as well as Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. So those are some of the key elements which we heard from him, but uh, I also believe uh, that uh, just like uh, Dr. Swaminathan, I think these problems we face in the years ahead, we can, scientists can rise up to meet the challenges just like they did last time 
with the finding the answers to when millions were starving in India and other parts of Asia uh, and preventing those starvations, although the doomsayers were saying at that time, Paul Ehrlich uh, and others, that there will be mass starvation, that did not happen. So both uh, Dr. Swaminath and I continue to be optimistic that we can meet the challenges which will lie ahead in the next 15, 20, 30 years. Thank you very much once again. Thank you.